Okay, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verses 5 to 25. So last week was Blessing Sunday. The week before, we were, we were talking about Acts 8, verses 1 to 4. And we are seeing how God works all, everything together for good, to accomplish His own purposes, even the persecution of the church. So that was the last time. This time... Um, I've called this message Marks of a False Convert because we're going to be looking at Simon who by everything we can tell in Scripture seems to be a false convert. So that's where we're going today. Father, we just uh, lift up our hearts to you. And this is a sacred time, Lord, when we open up your word. We don't want to be cavalier about it. We don't want to make mistakes in understanding it. We ask for your help. We, I pray you'd give discernment to every person as they think through your word, that you'd give them wisdom and discernment to be able to divide uh, your truth rightly. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us. Pray that you'd speak to any person here, Lord, that especially needs to hear these words and see this example of Simon today. Work in them and, and work in all of us, Lord, to accomplish your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take a look at our text today. It's Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 5, and we're going to go through verse 25. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. I love that. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. One of the problems that the church has faced from the very beginning is that of false converts entering her. Remember Jesus taught that there would be wheat and tares that would grow up together and that they would not be separated until the very end on judgment day. Now a tear is a weed, but it resembles wheat. It looks like it. And it's a little difficult to tell the difference, but on judgment day, they're all going to be separated and uh, the wheat will be gathered into the barn. The tares will be burned. He also taught that some who heard the word of God would be like the seed that is sown in rocky places and it springs up quickly, but it has no firm root. It's only temporary. And when affliction because of the word arises, that person falls away. Another example of a person who appeared to be a convert but was not. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our insurance firm until the end. Let me read that again. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What does that tell you? If a person is truly in Christ, if, if, he's, if he's truly a partaker of Christ, he will hold fast the beginning of his assurance firm until the end. He will persevere in faith. And if he does not do that, then he was not a partaker of Christ. So the scriptures give us information about false converts. They talk to us about this phenomenon coming up. And I think we have a good example of a false convert here in Acts chapter 8 and the person of Simon, Simon the sorcerer. Now let's get, our, get the context before we jump into the chapter 8. Go back in your mind to chapter 6. Do you remember there was a problem in the Greek-speaking Jew or Jewish widows who were not getting their daily allotment of food? And the apostles were tempted to jump in and try to solve the problem, but they said, no, that's not the right way to handle it. We need to give ourselves to the Word of God in prayer. We're, we want you to select seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So they chose seven men. Two of them were Stephen and Philip. And these two guys get a lot of attention in the book of Acts. Luke tells their stories. Um, Stephen's story is told in the second half of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And Philip's story is told here in chapter 8. And... Uh, Stephen is the first martyr of the church. Philip's the first missionary of the church. A missionary is someone who crosses a cultural barrier in order to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And that's exactly what um, Philip did. He crossed a cultural barrier because Philip was a Jew. The people he's reaching in chapter 8, well, at least the first half of chapter 8, are Samaritans. And there's a big cultural division between Jews and Samaritans. In fact, in John 4, verse 9, it says that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They just didn't deal with each other. They didn't talk to each other. There was no fellowship between them. For about 700 years, there had been this deep 
hatred, this deep animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And I'll give you a real quick history lesson. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army came into the northern ten tribes of Israel, and they conquered them, and they carried away these Jews in chains. They deported them all the way to Assyria. Now, of course, they didn't carry away every single last one of them. Some Jews remained in that area, but a lot of them were taken away. That was the captivity they were led into. And what the Assyrians did was they repopulated some of their people in those ten tribes. So now you've got a mixture of Assyrians and Jews all living together. And so what happens over time is that these people intermarry and they start having children. And that's what the Samaritans were. They were the Jews that were left in the northern ten tribes marrying the Assyrians who had come in and their children are now half-breeds or mongrels, as they were called. Some... Yeah, yeah. And you, you can see why, see the Jews who prided themselves on their nationality of maintaining a pure bloodline, they would despise the Samaritans who were not pure in their eyes. In fact, the Samaritans had their own form of worship. They, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. They had their own temple, and it was on Mount Gerizim, so they had their own form of worship. They had their own sacred scriptures. Um, they did believe that the Messiah was coming. In fact, remember the, the Samaritan woman at the well? When Jesus talked to her, uh, she said, I know that Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So they believed in the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, the Samaritan woman, I, I believe, was someone that the Lord used to prepare the soil for Philip coming now to Samaria six or seven years later because remember that woman she had been converted and then she went into town and she said come and see a man who told me everything I ever did and so all these Samaritan men came to see Jesus and Jesus stayed a couple of days just teaching them and the Bible tells us that many of them came to believe not because of the word of the Samaritan woman but because of the word of Christ so there is already belief in Christ there in Samaria before Philip even shows up the soil has been prepared but now Philip's going to reap a great harvest as he comes so Acts 6 and 7 tell the story of Stephen. Acts 8 tells the story of Philip. And interestingly, in Acts 21 verse 8, the Bible says that, well, it mentions Philip the evangelist. Now, I find that interesting because the word evangelist comes up three times in the New Testament. Three times. There's only one time when anybody is ever named an evangelist, and it's Philip. So, as we read chapter 8, we ought to get a clue about what an evangelist does, what his methods are, what, you know, how God uses him to bring people to Christ. So, the, we'll look at the first half of chapter 8 today, and then next week we'll have a message on the resurrection, and then the week after that, I anticipate, we'll get back into Acts 8 and we'll learn more about Philip's evangelistic ministry. Now, in the first half of Acts chapter 8, Luke is interested in showing us Philip, his ministry there in Samaria. In the second half, he's interested in showing us Philip's ministry to one single person, this Ethiopian eunuch, and how the Lord uses him to reach that eunuch and bring him to Christ. So, first half, he's reaching the crowds 
in Samaria. Multitudes are coming to Christ. The second half, it's one solitary individual, and the Lord, Philip is used by God to bring him to Christ. Now, sometimes in the Bible, God gives us good examples for us to imitate. And sometimes in the Bible, God gives us bad examples to shun. I believe we got the second kind in Acts chapter 8 here. Simon was not an example for us to follow. He was an example to shun. I believe personally that Simon was not truly converted. I think he was an example of a false convert. And you say, well, why would you think that? There, there's a lot of reasons. Someone could make a case that he was a true believer. Because it does tell us in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. So he believed Philip's preaching of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. And it was, he was also baptized. So he, was, he believed, he was baptized, and then it says he continued on with Philip. So he wasn't a flash in the pan. He believed, he got baptized, and then he continued on following after Philip, as Philip did these signs and wonders. So far, so good, right? That, that all looks great. But there's a lot in his story that makes you wonder what really is going on in his life. Even Philip believed that Simon was a true convert because he baptized him. He wouldn't knowingly, right? He wouldn't knowingly baptize someone who he, he believed wasn't even converted at the time. But that just proves to us, I think, that it's possible to fool the preacher. We don't always know until time tells us. Time will show us whether someone is a true believer or not. But the Bible has a lot to say about Simon. In verse 20... Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Now I want to say this reverently, but literally what he's saying is, To hell with you and your money. May your silver perish with you. Perish means to perish in hell. And then in verse 21 he says, You have no part or portion in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. And then, next verse, he says, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. It appears that the intention of his heart at this point was not forgiven, at least yet. And that the intention of his heart was wicked. So, there's some unforgiven sin in his life. And then in verse 23, he says, You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Now the New Testament never describes a Christian as being a slave of sin, but that's exactly what it means if someone is in the bondage of iniquity. Slaves are in bondage. Slaves of sin. That's how he's described here by Peter. And when Peter urged Simon to repent and asked the Lord to forgive him, what does Simon do? Verse 24. He refuses. He says, pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you had said may come upon me. He said, I don't, I don't want the consequences of my sin. But it's not that he hated the sin itself. He just didn't want the consequences of his sin. And so he didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't pray to the Lord. He didn't repent. He didn't confess his sin. He just said, Peter, please, you pray, so that no bad thing that you've just said may come upon me. So for all of those reasons, my conclusion is that I don't think Simon was a saved person. He went through the motions 
He made a profession of faith. He got baptized. He continued on with Philip, but he doesn't show the evidence of true repentance or a new creature in Jesus Christ. It doesn't seem like he truly submitted his life to the Lordship of Christ. So for the remainder of our time together, what I'd like to do is point out four marks of a false convert. We see all four of these marks in Simon's life. Number one, Simon sought his own glory. So let's go back in our story and take a look here. Verse 9, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Now notice, first of all, he practiced magic. He practiced magic. This could be either just sleight of hand. You're like an illusionist today. They're not really doing anything supernatural, but it appears so. They're so good at it, you think, how is he doing that? Debbie and I went to a magic show, I think it was a year ago, and we came away just blown away. How did he do what he just did? We saw it with our own eyes. It looks supernatural. So... It could be that. It could be a guy who was practicing illusionists or sleight of hand magic, or it could have been satanic and of the occult and supernatural power given him by Satan. I don't really know which one it is, but whatever it was, he was astonishing the crowds with what he was doing. It says he astonished the people of Samaria. Verse 9. He was claiming to be someone great, he was astonishing the people of Samaria. Verse 11 says, And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. That tells me that Simon was very well known, and he was looked up to by all the people. He had been telling them that he was someone great, and they had bought into it. They were calling him the great power of God, astonishing them with his magic arts. And at the same time, he was receiving great attention from the people. Verse 10 says, They all, from smallest to greatest, so he's making a point here, this is everybody, they were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. Verse 11, They were giving him attention. Notice twice Luke tells us that they were giving him attention. And I think Simon was looking for the attention. He loved the attention. He loved to astonish the people and make himself look like he was the great power of God in the presence of all the people. And we have no reason to really to believe that this pattern changed when Simon believed and was baptized. Because when Peter and John came down and laid their hands on these new converts and the Holy Spirit fell on them, Simon started asking if he could buy the power to do what they just did. In other words, he wants to keep on astonishing the people. <laughs> he wants to, at that time, magicians sometimes would buy other magicians' tricks. And it seems like maybe that's what he had in mind. Hey, you, that's a pretty good trick you're doing. You, you lay your hands on them and look what happens. Probably they began speaking in tongues because that's what happened in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, whenever the Spirit came upon a new group of people. So how, how did you do that? You laid your hands on them and they start speaking in another language. I want to be able to do that, so he asked to buy the power. But why did he want that power? Probably because he wants the applause and the attention of the people, like he had always had. So, in this regard, Simon bears the mark of a false convert. When a child of God is regenerated, something changes within his nature. 
He might have previously lived for his own glory, but there is now this new desire that comes into his heart to glorify God. That's what happens when a person is born again. There's an inward change that takes place. When the Spirit of God comes in, He begins to work on that individual and transform him. And there's a new heart, a new spirit within him. The real Christian agrees with Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. So the Christian says, yes, I was created for God's glory. That's the reason I exist. The Christian agrees with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul said, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So instead of exalting ourselves and glorifying ourselves, we said, we're just bondservants. <laughs> we're just servants for Jesus' sake. We preach Christ. He's the one that you, we want you to exalt and love and esteem. The true Christian's heart resonates with Paul's statement in Galatians 6.14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May it be that I would never boast except in Christ and His cross. The child of God prays the prayer that Jesus taught him to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom come. Not my will be done. There's a revolutionary change that has taken place within his soul. And there may be times when a true Christian is tempted to do his works of righteousness to be seen of men, but then he's going to remember what Jesus taught. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So the Christian will be reminded of Christ's words, and he'll take that to the Lord in prayer and repentance. So brothers and sisters, if you can't honestly say that your desire is to glorify God through your life, it should make you pause and just wonder, has the Lord begotten me again? Have I become a new creature in Jesus Christ? Am I a true believer in the Lord Jesus? This is really Christianity 101. This is basic to the Christian life, that we would have a desire to glorify God. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe it's verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So a person who has a hunger to glorify God, or let me put it this way, if he has a, a hunger to glorify himself rather than God, may indeed be a false convert. He may have believed intellectually. He may have been baptized. He may have even continued on in the church, but he may not be a true child of God. Secondly, a second mark of a false convert. Simon sought to use God for his own ends. He sought to buy the power to bestow the Holy Spirit. Now remember, he had been watching Philip do some amazing miracles. Philip was casting out demons. Philip was healing the sick. There was great rejoicing in that city. And he was following along just watching this, blown away by what he saw Philip do in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think he wanted to have the same ability. He wanted to be able to do the things that Philip was doing. But one thing that Philip doesn't do is bestow the Holy Spirit. 
that's left to the apostles, Peter and John, when they come down from Jerusalem, they're the ones that lay their hands on these converts, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get too far afield, which I could right now. If you would like to explore this whole thing about why, when they were converted, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit immediately, let's save that for a Q&A time, because it's going to get me off track. If, it's going to take a while to explain all of that. So I'm going to put that aside for right now, but, um, and I'm going to pick up way down here in my notes. <laughs> so putting all that aside, the thing I want you to see in, in is Simon's desire to buy the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit. I think he still wanted to be known by everyone as somebody great and astonish the multitudes. And so he wants to buy that ability from Peter. How did Simon know that these Samaritans were receiving the Holy Spirit? It says, verse 18, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He observed it. He, he saw, and I think implied in that is heard as well. There was something going on demonstrably that he witnessed saw and heard some things. I, personally, I believe it was probably the ability to speak in other tongues, because that comes up again and again in the book of Acts. He saw that. Um, and Acts chapter 2, when the Jews are first incorporated into the body of Christ, the 120 spoken tongues. And Acts chapter 10, when the Gentiles are first incorporated into the body of Christ, they spoke in tongues and exalted God. That's Acts 10.46. In Acts chapter 19, when the disciples of John the Baptist first were incorporated into the body of Christ, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So this was a bit of a pattern that you see in the book of Acts. Whenever any new group is incorporated into the church, there's this sign. The Spirit falls on them and they speak with other tongues. Sometimes they prophesy. So that's probably what's going on here. But what I want you to see is Simon seems to want to use God to accomplish his own ends. He wants to be known as someone great. He wants to be exalted in the eyes of the people. And so he looks at the Holy Spirit as sort of some kind of impersonal force that he can use to get this power to do this thing where everyone's going to be amazed at him and he, he can still have this following. So he's interested in using God for his own personal success and power. And the Christian life is exact, exactly the opposite of that. Instead of using God for my own ends, the Christian life is allowing God to use me for his own ends. It's just turn it upside down and you have the correct application. It's surrendering our lives to God so that he will use us to accomplish his purposes. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So the desire of the true child of God is he wants to be useful to the master. Haven't you prayed before, Lord, would you just use me? Use me for your purposes. Use me to accomplish your will. That's the heart of the regenerated person. He wants God to use him to accomplish God's glory in the world. 
Paul says in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for what? For His good pleasure. That's the heart of the child of God. Lord, work in me to will and to work for your good pleasure. Jesus taught in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Lord, use me to do these good works, not so that my name is exalted, but that God, my Father, is glorified. So another mark of a false convert is a person who seeks to use God to accomplish his own ends. So that might look like the soldier in the foxhole who prays, Lord, get me out of this situation and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And as soon as his life is saved, he goes back to his sin. Right? He's just using God so he has, he's not killed in wartime. It could be the person who prays the sinner's prayer because they think that by doing that, they're going to escape from hell, but they have no real love for Christ, no real desire that Christ would use them for his purposes. They simply want to escape punishment. It could look like the person who goes to church and gives their money to the church thinking that by doing that it's going to guarantee that they're going to become rich and successful because that's what the preacher tells them. Using God for their own ends. We have to be careful of that. Uh, God is not a genie in a bottle that we use to do whatever we want to do. God is a sovereign Lord of the universe that we submit to. We are servants of the Most High God. So be honest with yourself today. If there's no deep-seated love for God in your heart and desire to honor Him with your life, you just may not be a Christian at all. So take, just take a moment to be honest. It doesn't do any good to lie to yourself. We're all going to stand before God and give an account one day. We better, better be honest now rather than later. We're just, we could be deluding ourselves. Third mark. Simon remained a slave to sin. How do we know that? Because of verse 23. Peter says, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Now the gall of bitterness probably refers to the fact that he was bitter that Philip had come into town and usurped him. Philip was now the great power of God. Everyone's looking to Philip. They're astonished at what he's doing. And now he's lost his place with all these people and he's just a, a peon and Philip's a superstar in their midst. So he's bitter about that. But he's also in the bondage of iniquity. Um, bondage of iniquity refers to being a slave to sin. But the Bible tells us that Christians aren't slaves to sin. Romans 6.18 Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's describing a Christian. Or Romans 6.22 But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Amen. So we're not saying that a Christian doesn't sin. He does. First John tells us that. But he's not a slave to it. Now how would you describe what it means to be a slave to something? What does that mean? You work hard at it like a slave works hard? Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. If you're a slave to somebody, let's say, that person controls your life. You, you've lost your will to do what you want to do in life. They tell you what they want you to do, right? You're a slave to them. 
Well, being a slave to sin is you're controlled by that sin. You're powerless to change it. They, the sin is like a master dictating to you what to do, and you just follow it. That's a slave to sin. Um, and it's the behaviors, the sinful behaviors that we might be slaves to could be things like lying. Some people are just chronic liars, and they can't seem to be able to change that. Um, stealing, some people are just thieves. Um, pornography, some people talk about being addicted to pornography, and they seem to be powerless to change that. Um, drugs, sexual immorality, or you can name probably a hundred other things, right? The sinful behaviors that you have, you feel like there's no ability, no power for you in and of yourself to change. And if a man has not been born again, then perhaps he is a slave to those sins because he, he has no greater power than his own grit and determination to change anything about himself. But the Christian has the power of God. The Holy Spirit lives in him. That means that he's not, uh, he's not limited by his own human resources. Right? If, if God dwells in the believer, the power of God is there on his behalf to help him make changes in his life. So, what about you? Are you a slave of righteousness or are you a slave of sin? There's really only two types of people in the world. We're all slaves of something. It's either of sin or of righteousness, of Christ. That's the third mark. A false convert, although he may get baptized, he may say he believes, he may follow on and be a part of the church, he's still a slave to sin and he can't, he is powerless to break that, that, that sin in his life. Okay, one more mark. Number four, Simon was only concerned about being freed from the consequences of sin. We find that well, in verse 22, Peter says, Repent of this wickedness. Pray the Lord if possible. The intention of your heart may be forgiven you. You're in the bondage of iniquity. And wouldn't it have been wonderful if Simon fell on his face and said, You're absolutely right. God, forgive me. Please. I am a sinner. Why would I ever ask to buy the power of the Holy Spirit? Lord, you are, you know, to really repent of his sin, but he doesn't do anything like that. He just doesn't want to face the punishment that he deserves. So he says, You pray for me so that nothing bad like you've just talked about would come upon me. Simon's not concerned about being freed from sin. He is concerned about being freed from the negative consequences of sin. Peter had told him, may your silver perish with you. And he says, pray that that would not happen, that my silver would not perish with me. But the problem is, it doesn't appear that Simon hated sin itself. He hated the punishment or the pain or the suffering that would come to him because of his sin, but he didn't hate the sin itself. And when a person is regenerated, there is this new inward hatred. The Spirit of God hates sin. And if He lives within you, you're going to experience some of that hatred of sin in your life. Grief over sin. You don't want sin to master you. It's, it's loathsome to you because it's loathsome to Christ. So... This is the exact opposite of the true child of God because the new nature that God gives us in the, in the new birth. A true child of God, if he could, would never sin again. Because he loves righteousness. If he could, he would never sin again. So are you a partaker of the divine nature like Peter talks about? 
We have become partakers of the divine nature. Are you only concerned with escaping the consequences of sin, or do you really want to escape sin itself? Do you really want to escape sin? Do you want to stop sinning? Do you want to work righteousness in your life? Again, we just need to stop a moment, consider this, and deal honestly with our hearts before God. Where am I at, Lord? What am I truly made of? What have, you, have you done this work in my soul that I do truly hate sin? So, we've seen that Simon was most likely a false convert. Of course, we can't tell with absolute assurance because none of us are God. We don't know. God is omniscient. We're not. But from the things we're seeing here about his life, it does appear that he never truly became a, a, a believer in Christ. He sought to glorify himself. He sought to use God for his own ends. He remained a slave to sin. And he was only concerned about the consequences of his sin rather than the sin itself. Now, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul writing to the Corinthians would say, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. It's not wrong for a Christian every once in a while to take stock of where he's at and to test himself. That's biblical. If it was wrong, Paul never would have told the Corinthians to do it. It's, it's actually a good thing. It's healthy for us as believers once in a while to take, a, take this test. The false convert test. Am I a true or a false convert? And Paul goes on to say, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. So here's the test. Is Jesus Christ in you? That, that's the test. It's not, are you such a great person? It's, is Jesus in me? That's the test. Do I have any evidence that Jesus Christ is in me? If there is evidence to that, then I've passed the test. If there isn't any evidence, then perhaps I fail the test. So my prayer for all of us is that we would pass the test. That we would see that there is evidence that Jesus Christ really does live within us. That we would not look like Simon the sorcerer, but that we would look more like Philip. And like Stephen, who is willing to die for his faith, that we would look like a true child of God. Lord, would you please work in us what we've seen from, from this passage of Scripture, that we would not be deceived, and that, Lord, you'd help us when it comes to steering other people, that you'd give us wisdom to help them to search their own soul, to, to look to see whether Christ really is in them. May no one, Lord, in our congregation find themselves as a false convert in the end. May we all be true gold. May we pass through the fire. In Jesus' name, amen.